the permafrost itself has that rotten milk smell about it because it is just so packed. It basically is rotting organic matter. But I remember being in the room in that autopsy and Alexei Tikhonov, who's a very eminent Russian scientist, like one of the big experts on mammoth biology in the mammoth time period in Siberia. And I remember going into that room and he went, ah, the smell of Siberia in summer. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to another episode of Undead Matter Podcasts, a series of conversations about where life lies in the ever-turning matter of our universe. I'm Sophie J. Williamson, and for this episode, I'm excited to bring together artist Ori Tashiri with evolutionary biologist Tori Herridge. Together, they probe at the edges of where life ends and where genetic legacies can re-emerge, discussing the archives that are held within ancient bodies found in the permafrost, cross-species pregnancy, cloning, IVF, and the unborn. Interwoven throughout the episode is a reading of Naomi Richardson's 1962 sci-fi novel, Memoirs of a Space Woman, read by Hira Nabi. Think how vast Siberia is. Just look at a map of the world. Think how vast Siberia is. And that is pretty much all permafrost. And that soil is full of organic matter. And that organic matter is ice, age, animals and plants. Still very, very, very slowly rotting. It's incredible. Is more of it becoming visible with global warming? There's definitely more carcasses coming to light, a lot more. So I'd say in the last like 10 years, there's been an extraordinary number. And it feels like every year there's two or three amazing announcements from my colleagues in Yakutia about something incredible they've found. When we were there, there were these cave lion cubs, oh, just so beautiful, so beautiful. They looked like they were asleep. You could see the whiskers. There was this wolf head, um, this section of mammoth skin, like just skulls and skulls and skulls of woolly rhinos. Most incredible thing, this bird. It looked like it had flown into this ice cave. They brought out this incredible bird, fully feathered. It looked like it had flown in there yesterday. But no, it was like, it's like 44,000 years old when it got radiocarbon dated. It's a horned lark. It's just incredible. That would have flown over the Ice Age landscape. There was a moth, a little Ice Age moth. That's how like tiny, fragile things just like preserved in there, like whole ecosystems preserved in that permafrost. And it's just a remarkable, remarkable resource. So I visited Yakutsk to attend what was called an autopsy, a necropsy is the official terms, but you know, autopsy is a more familiar term, of a carcass of a woolly mammoth that had been discovered in the New Siberian Islands, which is in the far, far north of Russia in the Arctic Sea. That This particular carcass had captured people's attention because when it was found and when it was being excavated, when a pickaxe went into it, this red, gloopy fluid the colour of blood started to drip out of the hole and it created a flurry of excitement and news headlines saying we've found a mammoth with living blood. And of course, for certain groups who are interested in getting really well-preserved genetic material, that gave an idea that this particular mammoth might be exceptionally well-preserved. Now, it turned out that wasn't really blood. It was more probably better described as corpse juice, maybe. <laughs> but nevertheless, it was really exciting. March is still really cold. You go from wearing multiple layers and down outside and then going inside to a very, very warm room with a very stinky mammoth carcass. So whilst it's frozen, it's fine. But as it starts to warm up, as it did over three days, the smell gets fruitier and fruitier. And probably the best way to describe it is a combination of like rotten meat and rotten milk. You get used to it. It's a sort of mammoth funk. It was everywhere. You know, it was an interesting and stinky experience, but a wonderful one. And it's so different because, of course, I work in the med. 
there's no permafrost in the Mediterranean. And so everything there that I work on is definitely what you would recognise as kind of stereotypical fossil. It's heavy, mineralised. You know, these are bones that have become stones and there is no flesh left on them. Whereas this mammoth, you know, it was meaty and viscerous. I mean, I held its liver. I held its liver like floppy in my hands. I got to straight the fur in its trunk. And you just don't get to see that with straightforward fossils. Quite a few questions came to mind about the difference between working with fossils and working with those kind of frozen matter. Yes, yeah, so maybe you can say a little bit about your overall work and research and how that relates to this particular side of your research. In particular, I work on elephants mostly from southern Europe and the Mediterranean. So um, I work on island elephants, dwarf elephants is a whole different question. So these are elephants that got to islands and then evolved to become smaller. Um, but my research also includes fossil mammoths. So some mammoths as well as other types of fossil elephants. There are a lot of types of fossil elephants. <laughs> We're very, very sad that we live in a world with just three species of elephant now, but you haven't got to go back very far in time before the world is pretty much covered in all kinds of different species, all now gone. So I got invited to go to this autopsy and I was so excited because I'd never been to Siberia. Uh, I had never, ever interacted with a permafrost mammoth carcass. You call the mammoth buttercup, which I found really endearing. I've had a lot of identification uh, for different reasons. I couldn't not put myself in her place. But what struck me was really that she was frozen for however many years. And it made me think about times in my life when I felt frozen. And I think we all do sometimes. We just freeze emotionally. So what happened to her in this 40,000 years? So speculatively, that's what I wanted to ask you, because it's all a bit sci-fi anyway. Well, what happens in this 40,000 years when she's frozen? You know how the body kind of collects memories? I guess that's what I'm asking. What happened in the 47,000 years since she was frozen in that mire? The world, the world that she knew changed, like completely and irrevocably changed. So she died at a time before the last glacial maximum. So we hadn't seen the final kind of like the final extreme section of the ice age that happened. And so um, she was still in a world where the majority of the global north was treeless, the forests across much of northern Europe and Eurasia, across to Beringia and through. So we're talking about this thing called the Mammoth Steppe, which was a mostly treeless landscape. Yeah, I mean, there might have been trees in sort of pockets with wonderful grasses and herbs growing, very productive, full of woolly mammoths and sort of woolly rhinos, maybe some saber-toothed cats, uh, you know, wolves and bears and musk oxen and reindeer and things. Some of those things are still there, but most of them are gone. And then in that time that passed, first of all, there was a massive cooling period, the last glacial maximum where the ice came down again and expanded into Northern Europe and North America. And then there was the warming. And with the warming, we also see a movement and increasing number of people. And then between the two of those things, no one's quite sure which was the, the most important, humans or the climate change. But between both of those things, suddenly you start to see mammoth populations dwindling, woolly rhino populations dwindling, cave lion populations dwindling. They're all gone. 
Now you sort of see them all sort of blinking out if you look at their ranges on the maps of these different papers. You know, the numbers of fossils start to disappear as the time goes forward. So you get to about 10,000 years ago and then there's very, very, very few dots left and you've only got a few mammoths left. And then by 4,000 years ago, you've only got those single points on Wrangell Island and St Paul's Island. They're still clinging on, but then they're gone. So she's been frozen for 47,000 years a while. Above her, the mammoths are disappearing, the forests are advancing the forests are coming up to the north you get that boreal forest which is much more typical of the area now and her world has changed that's incredible so all that is partly able to be evidenced through looking at her dna and other structures we know how old she is because they radiocarbon dated her so we know how old she is and we know a lot about mammoth genetics. I mean, it's, it's been a lot of work on mammoth DNA because you get these spectacularly preserved specimens from the permafrost. And so for any extinct animal, I'd say mammoths is one of the best studied. And so we have a pretty good idea for this extinct animal about the genetic diversity and how that declines. But also we see the fossils just disappearing from the fossil record. Yeah, it's incredible, I think, to think about it as an archive. And if, if I understand correctly, this um, sort of frozen biological matter, her fur, her carcass in itself, the tusks, they're like an archive that hold a lot of that information. Is, is that correct? And in relation to that, was it possible to kind of ascertain the relationship between her and humans? So from a scientific point of view, if you want to ask the big questions about sort of mammoth evolution, mammoth ecology, diversity, extinction, she's just a single data point. So her individual life story makes a great story, but it becomes interesting and powerful when it's put alongside the stories of other mammoths yeah, that we could also study. But you're right, her body itself is an archive. Now, there's a researcher called Dow Fisher. He specialises in looking at patterns in mammoth tusks, looking at the way the tusks grow to understand major moments in the lives, the life history, we call it, of female mammoths in particular. Because the way that these tusks lay down their dentines, the mammoth tusks are made of dentine. Dentine is the stuff that's basically in the middle of your teeth. So if you were to cut your molar open, you would see a dentine centre. We've just got enamel around the edge of it. The tusks don't have enamel around them, so they've just got the dentine. That's what the ivory is. But it's still laid down in an incremental fashion. And those increments are affected by other pressures in your life. So if you have a bad season, if through starvation or illness, then you will put down less dentine. If you have a good one, you can grow faster. It makes sense, right? You've got more resources to apply to growth. And similarly, pregnancy is a massive toll on any female's body and so when you're pregnant you expect to see a kind of slowing down a reduction in the amount of dentine that's laid down so Dan looks at these patterns through the tusk and he interprets them as periods where you can see sort of major moments where the tusk grew slowly and it looks like a lot of those relate to pregnancy moments so he can sort of map them they're in the right time frame so and that, yeah, in terms of we know that elephants have a 22 month pregnancy and they wean about four years you know that kind of thing so he can sort of he follows those patterns and interprets them as life history and to create a story of that individual mammoth that becomes really powerful where you could do it across several mammoths 
because then you can start to look for changes in those patterns. And through time, to see if there's any increased pressure on populations. So Dan thinks he sees, for example, a pattern that suggests that maybe birth intervals or breeding was happening more frequently as mammals were put under pressure by people. That's an interesting thing. Well, that's interesting. You're describing an archive that is actually collective, that it gains more meaning by being collective rather than one mammoth or one person. So yeah, it's always, always a collective archive. However, my conscious concentration was all on the radiates. Gradually, over a period of weeks, I developed communication, first from generalized approval or disapproval, and the simple harmonics to more complex and precise and mental aesthetic or mathematical statements. Then gradually we got on, once they themselves were cooperating completely to further developments. I had of course like a dancer to adapt myself to my communicators. That's the kind of reason why, as I've said, I believe communication science is so essentially womanly. It fits one's basic sex patterns. And the more I adapted to them, the more out of tune I became with my own normal concepts. Turning over on my mattress, I had one of those rather special ones then that fold into nothing and form at a touch of any atmosphere. Nowadays, I meditate and don't need one. Even that simple choice involving right or left seemed unnatural. Right hand or left, impossible alterations. In communication, as of course you realize by the constant succession of A or B, A or B choices, snap judgments and actions can be made as rapidly as possible in the semi-intuitive technique we have all learned, which is both mental and manual, since it also involves instruments. I found these choice successions increasingly difficult to make. It was like walking in loose sand, a drag of other concepts. And this idea of put under pressure, I mean, how do you pressurize a mammoth to birth? <laughs> Basically, when you are pregnant, generally in mammals, what happens is the baby doesn't suffer too much, but the mum does <laughs> when you're under some kind of nutritional strain. First and foremost, the baby will cannibalize you. <laughs> so you need extra resources to a certain extent because uh, you've got to keep your basic daily activity going up. A mammoth mum couldn't stop and put her feet up. She still had to walk between water sites. She still had to eat the same amount of grass or more each day and so, you know, and walk the same distances at the same speed in situations where their lives, their environments have been disrupted. Home range or ranging distance, which is very energetically expensive, right, to walk and keep walking if you're avoiding hunters, if you've got to go further for water, climate's an issue there. So if your water table changes and your water sites change, it does seem that certain climatic changes in the Ice Age past happened very, very rapidly. So this could be within within one or two mammoth generations who, you know, they live the same time as we do, so they experience similar generation time, and it's also thought these things would have affected humans. And if we apply elephant biology to mammoth biology, which seems sensible, because we can see similar things happening in Asian elephants and African elephants in terms of their behaviour, and the mammoth is kind of nestled in between. So if both African elephants and Asian elephants do it, why not mammoths? If we apply that, the knowledge of your matriarch in your herd is one of the most fundamental things to the survival of juveniles because it's the matriarch who knows the roots, the matriarch who knows where to find water when, on tough drought years and water's really, really important, almost more than food. 
it's water, particularly for a big elephant. There's the evolutionary pattern, the kind of the bigger picture thing that over time maybe shows a shift in the way um, sort of the, the, the basic life history, like the age of first pregnancy, the birth spacing of a species might change because external pressures on individuals might mean that certain strategies are better than others. And so let's say in a kind of unstressed mammoth population, there's no hunting, they've got all the food they want. In that kind of unpressured situation, you can afford to have quite a wide range in the genetic differences of individuals for when they first get pregnant, how frequently they have babies. There's a lot of give in the system, right? If you take away give in the system, then suddenly only certain individuals will do better than others. So it might be, for example, that in a situation where you have a higher juvenile mortality, maybe due to hunting, then in that situation, evolution might favour those individuals that give birth younger because you're more likely to have passed on genes before you get (laughs) snipped off by something. And Dan thinks he was sort of a signal of that in some of the TUS data for mammoths and mastodons in North America. Naturally, I tried to communicate. I did not hide this and I also began to question the apses. It became apparent that there was some close relationship between the apses and these others. At last I found one of the apses who obviously knew all about it. We always find it difficult to tell them apart. That's always so, of course, with some species towards which one can have no emotional feeling. Perhaps if one had allowed oneself to hate the apses, one could have told them apart. But hate is something of which no explorer should ever be guilty. Anyhow, this one was larger than the rest and highly decorated. His feet were all inlaid with various metals which gave a very striking effect while they rippled. Our communication was of course not in sounds and they were uninterested in proper names, assuming even that they had them. Among ourselves, We call this one Glitter Boy. He seemed to enjoy particularly being asked questions about the other fauna. They seemed to have a name for them, allied to the concept of a sphere or circle. I translated it, the rounds. It seemed to have something to do with their eyes and head shape. He let us know that if we wanted to find out more about the rounds, we should come with him at a time he would indicate. My next attempt was to communicate with the rounds with regard to the apses. This was the more difficult because I had no notion of how much aware they were of the other species. I started by showing them pictures, up to life size, but they had no idea how to perceive or organize the information from pictures. Then I got one of the others to help me make some 3D flimsies, which, after a lot of frustration behavior, they did finally recognize. The reaction then was one of anger. They beat at the flimsies and tore them and a few ran away. I began to wonder what I was likely to see. I'd love to hear about your work and why Ice Age material like this, like that woolly mammoth has has fascinated you. Yeah. I've been practicing for a long time, but I'll distinguish the past five years as a period where I started to 
particularly look at death, dying and the digital, as well as slightly other forms of technologies. I was also interested in the critique of the digital, digital services that are offered to, as digital legacy to people who are dying or posthumously. I was interested in technology or the way technology perceives itself as some kind of a bridge to the afterlife. And the, in the area that I was looking at, it would be either avatars or it would be kind of digital wheels or ways to communicate with the dead and taking on things in the past were maybe done by seance or other ways, but currently have shaped into technological services. I was looking at those in relation to how we relate to mourning, how we relate to death in the digital age and how that kind of transformed our perception of death as well. And yeah, that led me slightly to areas like avatars and then posthumanism with the idea of freezing yourself or your pet and then hoping to be resurrected, which maybe brought me to mm. also the interest in the ice age. So I'm still very interested in old age and aging and kind of end of life. In relation to technology, things like AI and how people are kind of monitored in care homes medically and emotionally, how care is replaced or kind of been hybridized with human care and technological care, forms of technological regime of care that are assigned to old people. I was interested in that and then I kind of also thought, why am I only interested in that end of life, what about pre-birth? Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about pre-birth and IVF and all that, and AI interventions into IVF. And then I was thinking, well, why just these two ends? And this is when I was speaking to Sophie, and then she told me about that Siberian horse that was found that was frozen and 43,000 years old. And I was thinking, like, I'm now obsessed with that kind of liminality. <laughs> and, like, so this is where all my questions come in relation to linearity and time and the status of these kind of being, are mm. they dead, are they alive? Yeah. Where do you place them on the life cycle? Exactly. So I've had IVF, so it's interesting about sort of the recording of all the digital interaction with your potential child, because you can watch on screen the egg collection, and you can watch on screen at the moment of you know, effective fertilisation, and it's there and it's like, visible and it just looks, I mean, it's, it, the whole thing is very incredible because it's always these grainy images that are very reminiscent of the universe, like you know, these kind of pictures of, they feel like out of space, like you've got this sense that you're just this crazy granulated universe inside you, like everything is like that and it's just, it feels so big and your whole life is focused on it. But then you end up with that question, you know, because you end up with X number of eggs that have been fertilised if you're lucky. And then the ones that don't get implanted, you know, if at some point in the future they become a person, they grow up into a person, at what point did their life begin? And it's that idea, like, can you leapfrog time? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those kind of frayed edges between what's life, what's death. Mm -hmm. Those great areas I'm really fascinated by. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it is amazing. And you're right, if you then leapfrog that back into deeper time and you start thinking about these permafrost carcasses that people are convinced will somehow lead them to a, a clone... We can talk about whether or not that's possible or not. But if that's the case, is that clone a 43,000-year-old horse? Or is it like a zero-year-old horse? <laughs> and yeah, what's it been doing in the interim? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it becomes, going back to the IVF point of view, it is really interesting because you very much animate in your mind you know, the fertilised eggs because they're full of your hope and you've seen them and they have a record. Like I have a photograph from that moment in the sort of operating room at the hospital of that moment of sort of fertilisation effectively. So it is something, <laughs> it's not nothing, even if it's not really a person yet. 
Yeah, and I mean, for me anyway, spiritually or energetically, even just intending to do that, you're bringing something to life by just wishing it to happen. So I'm interested in the more soft edges. I think it is deeply fascinating. Of course, I imagine if you're at the coalface of fertility treatment and you're doing it all the time, then it is interesting. I'm sure those doctors are thinking along similar lines. For them, that kind of thought, the idea of potentially producing a living organism from a frozen cell is so directly related to what they do. What are the limits of that? The birth was not too difficult, though it took place without some of the usual Tehran safeguards. But naturally, I had a theoretical knowledge of muscle relaxation and, being a haploid, Vaila was considerably smaller than a normal child, though very well proportioned. She was, of course, entirely Tehran, but I called her Vaila to be as near as possible to Fly, who was finding himself very much involved. The idea of cloning or kind of genetically modifying, and there were these two potentials. One was to clone the mammoth and one to kind of genetically hybridize it with an elephant so it becomes more resistant to cold temperature. But in some way, both felt like the hook was extinction, that we're kind of going to fix something if we do that. I just wanted to kind of go into that a little bit, and particularly in relation to this book that I was telling Sophie about, and it's, it has been a part of my kind of Bible in terms of relationship between humans and non-humans. It was written in the 60s by Naomi Mitchelson, and it's a fantastic sci-fi book called Memories of a Space Woman. And it's all about okay. interspecies relations. And it's, for me, one of the most purely anti-colonialist book. And it talks about her as a kind of, well, a scientist and uh, explorer she kind of mixes with very different types of creatures, but in a non-interventionist way. There's a certain kind of a relationship where it's not an intervention, but she finds ways to have some communication almost with those creatures, and some of it very intimate connection, kind of central. I just wanted to ask about, just about understanding more how you feel about cloning and what's the impetus and in terms of both kind of the cloning, but also the hybridizing with elephants. And the difference between working with animals that are extinct now and the difference between that and trying to bring back something that is extinct quite a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I find this a very tricky topic because I'm torn in the sense there's a very large part of me. I know I'm on record and saying it's all terrible, but there's actually deep down a very large part of me that is like totally like this is awesome. <laughs> and the science is so cool. I can't it's help fiction. it. I can't, like, there's like, the bit of, there's, like Yeah, well, yeah, there's like, there's like the bit of me like, you know, no, my moral position is this. My moral and ethical position is this. And there's like, oh my God, oh, it's so, so glad amazing. you say that because I feel exactly the same. It's just great to hear that. I think I've got quite good evidence that there's a lot of post hoc justification because the reasons people give for why they're doing it have shifted with the zeitgeist. So originally it was a conservation thing, you know, which, you know so there was a kind of, oh, Asian elephants are going extinct, maybe we could preserve them genetically in a kind of a mammoth population, you know, kind of stuff. That's the George Church line anyway, because he's the non traditional cloning method. And then de extinction became kind of a cool thing. So, you know, humans cause mammoth extinction. So, you know, let's right a wrong that we did in the past. And now climate change is like really cool. And, you know, that's the kind of new thing. And so, let's like, you know, let's do it because it will maintain the structure of the permafrost and it will slow global warming. So, the reasons shift or at least accumulate. But I actually do think the reason that people want to do it is because it's cool. 
they just provide a post hoc additional reasoning to kind of make it sound less like a vanity project. But what's the problem with vanity projects sometimes? I mean, like, there's a kind of a, hu- a beauty to human endeavour. So I am torn. I found myself thinking endlessly about the craft. Or rather not thinking, but wondering about it. I could not think about it without a name, and I named it to myself with splendid inappropriateness. Ariel. I had a feeling it was part of me, in the same way that Ariel and Caliban are part of Prospero, as they are normally shown in productions of The Tempest. One of the plays which stand up best to really modern treatments with all the effects, and I happen to have seen it lately. There are basically two groups who seem to be pursuing this idea of cloning, I'll put it in inverted commas, cloning a woolly mammoth because it's not really cloning for one of them, but that's the sort of shorthand that everybody uses. So one group, which is the South Korean researchers at Suam Institute, are pursuing this idea of trying to actually do traditional cloning, which is where you get an egg cell with some actual nuclear DNA and you pop it in, so an egg cell from an elephant, living elephant, some nuclear DNA intact from a, a woolly mammoth, and you basically pop the two together, zap it with some electricity, and whoop, you've got an embryo. I can't get my head around that cloning. I mean, how you perceive it in terms of what is this thing? I mean, the, the status of it, like, again, philosophically, what is it? Yeah, exactly. What is it? Can it ever be the same individual? What are you actually trying to get back? It's living, it's born at a different time. You don't get it back at the moment at which it died. You never get, you get it back at a baby stage. So if you wanted to clone your mum, for example, when she died, you'd get a baby mum. What was interesting there, though, about that, that aspect of cloning, that's, I think, what people have in their mind when they think about cloning something. And it's part of this idea that you are your DNA. So if you actually took the DNA unmodified from a woolly mammoth that had died and popped it into an elephant egg, people would feel you'd got a woolly mammoth back. I think that's the general perception for all the people I've spoken to. The other approach to bringing back the mammoth, I'm going to put bringing back in inverted commas as well, is the George Church School of Thought, which is where you use DNA technology called CRISPR, which is a very new um, technique where you can very rapidly modify the genetic code or something. And you can take an Asian elephant genome and you can tweak it to basically produce an animal that looks like a woolly mammoth. So you can take an Asian elephant genome and you can tweak it so you make it woolly, have fat stores, the right kind of haemoglobin to survive well at cold temperatures, maybe longer curlier tusks. So the typical things, the features that we associate with mammoths, small ears, no tail. So basically to an unknowing outsider, you'd look at it and you would see a woolly mammoth. And that for him is what you need to do, because if your purposes are, as he says they are, to preserve some aspects of the Asian elephant genome genetically, to provide an ecosystem engineer for the permafrost regions of Siberia to kind of help slow permafrost melt and and therefore global warming and basically put the mammoth back into that ecosystem, then that's all you need to do. You don't need to have something that is genetically identical to an extinct animal. But when you explain to somebody that that kind of approach is actually creating a genetically modified Asian elephant, People are far less satisfied with it because there is an aspect in people's minds of the idea of rewriting history, the idea of bringing back. And it's inherent in the choice of words that people use 
I think, which tells you that there's a kind of an agenda here to kind of manipulate people's ideas on the topic. Because even George Church, you know, the people who are doing that approach, even though they're creating something entirely new, which is exciting and interesting, they will use terms like de-extinction, rewilding. It's fixing something. It's bringing back something. These are really interesting choices. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you're not bringing back something, you're creating something. It's an act of creation not an act of of restitution. It's very different, but the words that people choose to describe it are words that are inherently appealing to our idea of restoring something. That's very interesting. It it sort of makes me think about, again, this idea of almost playing God or the idea of intervention or colonialism when you kind of, you're introducing a, a change, but you don't know what the outcome will be. You don't know the consequences of that. No, I'm... You, you never know the consequences. <laughs> I mean, this is what I come down to about the ethics of it all. So why, in some ways, I also, you know, is the animal welfare ethics too, which is quite a big thing because even with the George Church approach, you still would need a surrogate mum. And, you know, you're, you're basically asking an Asian elephant to carry a genetically engineered fetus to term. And I mean, pregnancy is always dangerous, right? And difficult. And you're asking that for an intelligent being that does not do well in captivity. And those things worry me from an ethical point of view. But if you take this aside, which is a big put aside, apart from this idea of restoration, if you accept or think as I do that it's not restoring anything, it's creating something new, why not create something really new? Again, it's so (laughs) fascinating because everything seems to take us back to pregnancy. And then I'm thinking about a science fiction writer, Octavia Butler, and she, she wrote this trilogy, Dawn, and there's exactly that situation where they're trying to take the good parts from kind of, let's say, one organisms and the other. But that kind of organism that would then become pregnant with it will have to come to terms with the fact that their child will be always different to them, but on a quite major level. And what does that mean to the child? And then they have to be also in isolation because they'll be attacked because it's different in the not that creature or the other, the kind of a hybrid. So it brings up exactly all those questions. And again, it's really interesting in how speculative fiction was already really thinking about all those very complicated Mm. ethical questions but at the same time like yourself getting very excited um rather than kind of denying it but kind of and preserving something by the the possibility of hybridity or something new like you're saying there is something in there that is definitely enticing Do you know, so I remember making the point on, I think on Twitter, where I said Asian elephants and mammoths are separated from each other by like five, six million years of evolution, right? Which is not so dissimilar to how far you and I are from a chimpanzee. And so I like, so I then posed what I thought was a very provocative question, like, you know, would you be willing to carry a chimpanzee baby if it meant ensuring the survival of the chimpanzee species, right? That thinking, oh yeah, that's kind of going to be shocking. And I got, yes, <laughs> plenty of replies saying yes. Well, that surprised me because I thought people would be like, no. So to give you a sense of the risk that that could be, I mean, the idea of how difficult it would be to, you know, to carry a chimpanzee baby, how different that animal is to us. You know, in terms of size and biology, and it's not even like the ick factor in there because I, I can see if you really, really care about that species. But I think there would be a, a moment of like giving birth to something which is very different to you that would strike me as quite a hard barrier to get over. 
a kind of a, a sense of self. And elephants recognise themselves in the mirror. So man, they have they have a sense of what they look like. So if an Asian elephant gave birth to a little hairy baby, what you would feel like at that moment, I don't know what you'd feel like at that moment. Maybe you would just as a mother and be overwhelmed with the sort of endorphins and oxytocins and if giving birth to a chimpanzee, you'd be just like, this is the best thing ever. I love it. Would it be traumatic? Would it just be a really beautiful moment? What's really important, I think, also to remember is Whilst that's the permafrost region now, in periods of peak ice age, not that long ago, so 25,000 years ago, 200,000 years ago, 455,000 years ago, when there were previous like massive expansions of ice sheet, when the climate was much colder, the permafrost regions stretched much further south. And so there are regions in the UK today, in like, you know, Central Europe today, which are not permafrost, but would have been permafrost. So people moving in those landscapes would have experienced the permafrost mammoths that we're experiencing in northern Siberia now. And so there's lots of interactions. You want to imagine yourself in the mind of, say, a Neanderthal moving through Central Europe. They would have experienced the same thing that I'm experiencing. They would have maybe come across a riverbank which had eroding out of it a mammoth carcass that would have looked fresh but could actually be 50,000 years older than they are, which I find amazing. You know, it's like it's that same, I'm repeating an experience that somebody might have had. Now when we find those fossils, they aren't permafrost fossils anymore, they've just become fossils, but they were at some point, probably. There's a mammoth from Norfolk called the West Runton Mammoth, which is in deposits that are effectively permafrost deposits, but now they're just a beach cliff. So you look at that there, you, you go to West Runton in Norfolk, and then you're basically looking at the same kind of cliff that is on the banks of a river in Siberia now. You sort of leap across space and time when you think like that. It's mind-blowing, just the, the, the collapse of time and history and present and future and life and death is really mind-blowing. This series of podcasts is produced by Undead Matter, initiated and convened by Sophie J. Williamson. For more information about the Undead Matter programme, follow us on Instagram at undead underscore matter. Thank you.